Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Five Star App Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Karpus, co-founder of Meditation Studio and your host on Untangle, along with my co-host, Ariel Garten, one of the founders of brain-sensing headband, Muse. Join us each week as we introduce you to authors, experts, and thought leaders who share their stories on how meditation, mindfulness, and brain-focused practices have the power to change our lives. Whether you're just learning to meditate or want to deepen your practice, Meditation Studio with hundreds of guided meditations and Muse, which gives you real-time feedback on your mind during meditation, and Muse 2, which also tracks your breath, your heart, and your body, are tools you'll definitely want to have in your back pocket. Now, here's this week's episode with Ariel. Thanks, Patricia. So, hello and welcome. I'm Ariel Garten, and each episode we take you inside the head of neuroscientists, psychotherapists, and those who are skilled in the mental arts. And we learn both from their cutting edge work and their own human experience how to manage the crazy in all of our minds. Today, we have some Christmas magic to share. Real magic. We're going to get inside the head of someone very special who I have the honor of knowing for some years and whom the Dalai Lama endorses. He's Dr. James Doty. He's a Stanford neurosurgeon who's an extraordinary life story, moving from shame and poverty to success and giving, thanks to a woman he met in a magic shop. His amazing autobiographical tale is chronicled in his best-selling novel, Into the Magic Shop. And I love it so much, I've read it three times. So Jim, we love inside your head and inside your heart and show us what you've learned. Thank you so much for having me. And I appreciate your kind words. And uh, it's wonderful to be with you today. Thank you. I've been so looking forward to this conversation as I've literally read the book over and over and vibing its lessons. And I'm really excited to share with everybody some of the content and some of your magic. So in Inside the Magic Shop, you talk about your difficult childhood and the magic that saved you. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Well, I certainly don't want to imply that my personal story is the worst one possible, but certainly it was challenging. My father was an alcoholic and my mother had had a stroke when I was a child and a seizure disorder. And she was chronically depressed. And as a result, uh, she attempted suicide multiple times. Essentially, my entire life at home, before I went away to school or college, uh, we were on public assistance. Uh, neither of my parents had gone to college. And we now know through something called ACEs or adverse childhood experiences, when there's mental illness, when there's drug and alcohol abuse, when there's poverty, that it is very difficult for a child to overcome that. And after a number of these, uh, almost impossible. But as you point out, I was fortunate and blessed because at a really critical junction in my life, as you pointed out, I walked into a magic shop. A literal magic shop. So you really had the deck stacked against you. When you look at the ACEs study, you know, you look at one or two or three critical events, you literally had all of them stacked against you. But somebody saw you, really, really saw you, and took you under her wing and showed you something beautiful. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were shown? Sure. And I think this in and of itself is a really important point, is that one individual who looks at you in a non-judgmental manner 
can make a profound, profound difference. When I walked into this magic shop, I was 12 years old. I was scared. I was angry. I was filled with shame. Uh, realistically speaking, I had no future. And in great part, uh, it was a manifestation of what I thought about myself. And oftentimes, as a child, when you're in these types of circumstances, you intuit that it's because you deserve to be in those circumstances. And you hear these messages over and over again that you say to yourself that you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not worthy, etc. And then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, especially when others buy into that narrative or support that narrative. Now, in this instance, though, when I walked into this magic shop, there was this, um, I describe her as an earth mother, and usually you have to be over 50 years of age to know what an earth mother is, um, since that's a term from the 60s. But um, she was this earth mother type in the sense that she had this radiance about her. And when she looked up, she had these uh, glasses on the end of her nose and a chain around her neck holding them. She was reading a paperback book. And she looked up and, and she had this radiant smile that was totally embracing. And as you know, uh, one of the important things that we look for in our environments or in interacting with others is a sense of psychological safety. And I immediately felt comfortable. I didn't feel I was being judged. And the very nature of our conversation was one where I did not feel that she was looking down at me, I felt that she was talking to me as an equal, which isn't an experience at least I had had very often. And so that combination of the warmth, the smile, treating me, if you will, with respect and dignity made me feel very, very comfortable. And it turned out she just happened to be there while her son, who owned the shop, was doing an errand. And we engaged in a conversation and she actually asked some very penetrating questions, which normally I would have avoided answering or not answered. But in this instance, I did answer them truthfully. And after about 20 to 30 minutes, she looked at me in a very penetrating way. And she said, you know, I'm here for another six weeks. And if you show up every day, I think I could teach you something that could really help you and even change your life. And that was the defining moment. Indeed. Yeah, you have this beautiful, beautiful line in the book where you say you came to the profound realization that it's not that you weren't important. It's just that the pain of those around you made it impossible for them to see you. Such a beautiful, beautiful line. I think it's true. Oftentimes, and certainly in my circumstance, uh, my father had his own suffering, as did my mother. And while I don't doubt that they loved me, uh, many times people who are preoccupied with their own, their own suffering are looking at their situation and not beyond that, even though uh, there are others who may need them. And I certainly would characterize that as my situation. Yeah. And so Ruth takes you under her wing and she teaches you something critically important. Can you tell us what it is that she showed you? Well, uh, I characterize it in the book as Ruth's tricks. And it's interesting because, as you know, and this was back in 1968, the concept of neuroplasticity 
this idea of meditation or mindfulness certainly was not commonly spoke about, if at all, in the West, and certainly not where I lived. And reflecting back, though, essentially, clearly she had had exposure to these types of practices and probably had exposure to Eastern religions. And while she did not use the term neuroplasticity, she certainly understood through these types of practices that it is possible to change how you think and how your brain functions. And that certainly, I think, was the case. And so the first thing that she taught me, and I think this is important for so many of us, is that especially in modern society uh, where you're functioning at a high level, you have many things that are triggering your sympathetic nervous system. And it's not at a conscious level. It's how we evolve. But this is this mechanism within our brain that tries to protect us or shelter us. And certainly for me as a child, and oftentimes it's now translated into the term post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, normally we think of this as having to do with veterans and war, but individuals who were in unstable, chaotic, potentially violent environments, never knowing what's going to happen next, suffer this as well. And uh, in my situation, uh, I never knew if my father was going to not come home. Uh, I never knew if I would uh, come home and my mother would be unconscious. So, you know, you can appreciate how in that type of a situation, you're scared. You don't know what's going to happen next. And as a result, when we're scared and anxious, our muscles tense up. It's very hard to focus because we're always looking around, waiting for the next thing to happen. And your muscles are always tight. And, you know, when you're fish swimming through water, whether it's clean or dirty water, and that's what you're in all the time, you don't even know what uh, type of water you're in. And in my situation, I was in the situation constantly tense and scared and anxious. And I didn't, had no self-awareness of this, nor did I have a self-awareness that this uh, resulted in me not being able to attend or be present. And of course, a critical part of our social interaction that binds us and connects us to other people is this ability to attend and be present. And it's also really critical for high achievement. And she, again, intuitively recognized this. And basically, um, I would spend about an hour to an hour and a half with her in this back room of this magic shop. And certainly today, if somebody said, I'm taking a 12-year-old boy and he's going to sit with this older woman for an hour or two in this back room, it might not be appreciated. <laughs> uh, but it seemed perfectly okay. And in fact, it was. And the first thing she taught me was how to relax the body. And nowadays, I think we would use the term survey. I think this is what John Kabat-Zinn uses. And this is this idea where you sit, you relax or try to relax, but with intention, you go from your toes all the way up through your body while you're slowly breathing in and out and slowly breathing through your mouth, exhaling through your nose, 
And then you just sit there and this ability to sort of consciously relax start changes uh, physiologically in you. It uh, slows down your heart, your muscles relax, and you begin to have the sense of calmness. And certainly for me, being able to escape this chaotic uh, sort of environment that I had created in my mind uh, was quite unusual. And it took a while, as I talk about in the book, you know, frankly, initially, I thought this was craziness. And I was wondering, you know, what the hell's going on and what's what's she doing? But after a fair amount of practice, I was able to do this and to sit up straight and be completely relaxed and to breathe slowly in and out. And suddenly I started feeling the sense of calmness and actually feeling good and feeling okay. And it was really quite special. So this is amazing. In the late 60s, you happened upon a woman who taught you mindfulness before the term probably was even existing. Exactly. So I was one of the first mindfulness people in the United States. (laughs) (laughs) And so what did this allow you to do once you learned to relax your body and calm your physiology? Uh, That in and of itself allowed me to attend, if you will, to be able to listen more clearly to be present. And from that, she taught me what I call taming the mind or Ruth's trick number two. And what I didn't appreciate also was that I had, like so many of us, had a negative dialogue going on in my head. And the problem is that the way we evolved as a species things that are negative have a tendency to be sticky. Very attractive, yes. Because negative things often mean danger. And so statements that are made, negative commentaries, self-generated negativity, negative emotions, they have a tendency to stay with us. And it's sort of like the saying, you know, the truth travels slowly, but a lie travels, you know, at light speed. And in some ways, these negative things stick to us much more than positive things. And as a result, certainly for me, I had created a negative dialogue in my head. And it told me I wasn't smart, I wasn't good enough, I wasn't going to be anything and that I was responsible for my situation. And of course, this was a false narrative. The reality though is that when you tell yourself you cannot do something, by definition, it's not possible. You essentially give up your own immense, incredible power to this narrative or to others. I mean, how many times have each of us gone to a friend, somebody we cared about, and said, I have this great idea. In fact, it probably happened to you with Muse. We said, I have this great idea, and we're going to do this, and we're going to monitor brain activity and teach people how to control their mental state and help them. And people probably looked at you and said, that's stupid, or that's insane, or that's not possible, or it's never going to go anywhere, right? Absolutely. 100% happened. These are people you love and care about. And, and it's horrible, right? I mean, how often 
when you say something like this, a dream, an aspiration, somebody says, hey, if anybody can do it, I know you can. That is actually, I would suggest to you, a rarity. And part of it, I think, has to do with when somebody sees you with this incredible energy and dream and they don't have that type of an excitement or sense of power in themselves, they denigrate others because they don't want that person to exceed them or go beyond them or have visions that are bigger than their own, which is sort of sad as well. But regardless, one creates this narrative and what we don't appreciate from these negative emotions is that it's as if we're carrying a brick and we lay it in front of us, then we lay another one and another one. And after a while, what we're doing is we're creating a prison and it's a prison that gets smaller and smaller. The walls get higher and higher and there are no windows and it starts getting dark. And once you've built this prison up, it's very, very challenging to escape from it because now you're sitting in something that is self-created, that has walls, is dark, and you just see this over and over again. And what Ruth taught me was that this, in fact, was a false narrative, that it was self-generated, it was not reality, and in fact, it wasn't me, even though I thought I was generating these statements. Those statements, in fact, had nothing to do with me, who I was, or what I was capable of achieving. And this was an incredible insight. Yeah, wow. And now, reflecting back, of course, we look at the work of, um, of Krista Neff and uh, others, this idea of self-compassion, knowing that uh, we create these false narratives, knowing that they're not real, and how to be kind to yourself, how to love yourself, how to understand with all of your flaws, your failings, uh, that in fact you're worthy of love from yourself and from others. Yeah. And so practically how as a 12-year-old boy who got all of these messages from all directions that you were not worthy of love, that you were ignored, that you wouldn't be anything, how practically were you able to shift to the understanding that you were worthy of love? Like, what, what was the process? What was the exercise? Well, uh, once I understood what she was telling me, it was like uh, light went off in my head. I understood now that all of those statements were not real. I understood that wow. every time I said them, it was invalid and that it was within my power to change the narrative and to have self-acceptance, how to understand that my circumstances were not my fault. So what I understood was that I could change this narrative. And uh, the other aspect which I think people struggle with is we all have a shadow and it's a part of us that actually isn't something we're proud of. It's thoughts, behaviors, actions that actually diminish us. And uh, many of us struggle with them our whole lives. 
But the problem is that many people push them away. They don't want to admit that they're an inherent part of them. They don't want to admit that actually one has to integrate that shadow into themselves and still understand that with all of that, you are worthy of love. Wow. And as Ruth puts it so simply, just because one thing is broken doesn't mean that everything is broken. Exactly. And, you know, it's interesting because, uh, as you know, I've been uh, I've had the joy and the pleasure of being with a number of spiritual leaders, uh, not only the Dalai Lama, but Thich Nhat Hanh, Eckhart Tolle, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, Sadhguru, Desmond Tutu, the Pope, etc. And it's interesting because when you're in the presence of an evolved spiritual leader, what you see and what you were given in that situation when you have that level of proximity is unconditional love. Ah. Oh. I had the honor of meeting the Dalai Lama a few times. And the first time I did, what was palpable was just the warmth that you felt. As soon as, soon as I was next to him, everything was just warm. I looked up and I could see his nose hairs and like his nose hairs were looking lovingly at me. And it's a, this, this, this image of his flaws being meaningless. I've never been so in love with somebody's nose hairs. I know it's such a silly example, but it was that sensation of like, you know, humanity is okay. And then I, of course, burst into tears. And this is the power of these people. And what you also appreciate is that it, an evolved spiritual leader has no interest in dogma. They can look at a person in a microsecond and know if they love, if they have an open heart, and if they care. And it's always interesting because people say to me, Jim, you know, in your book or publicly, you'll say you're an atheist and you're a non-believer. How is it that these spiritual leaders seem to embrace you and accept you? And it's because I have no agenda, I demand nothing, and I'm who I am. So getting to this place where we have a world of people who are compassionately caring and holding one another in unconditional love would be an extraordinary place to be. But there's so much, seemingly so much friction in our lives, so much fear. How do we actually get to the place of beginning to share and experience that unconditional love with one another? Well, I, I think uh, that's the next lesson, if you will, uh, yeah. that taught me, which is this concept of uh, opening your heart. You know, it's very hard to love unconditionally until you can love yourself unconditionally, right? And this idea of self-compassion, being accepting of yourself, loving yourself in the face of your flaws is critically, critically important because when you're always beating up yourself on an unconscious level, you're often hypercritical and excessively demanding of others and looking at their imperfections because you spend so much time looking at your own. And so when you're able to be self-compassionate, when you're able to feel comfortable with who you are, both good and bad, uh, and still love yourself, then you can begin to start this exercise of giving unconditional love to others. And I think certainly the best way to practice that is to 
think of those times in your life and whether, you know, the Dalai Lama will use the mother uh, as an example. Think of those times in your life when you have been in the position when you've been vulnerable and someone has given you unconditional love and the warmth you felt and the safety and the bliss of that. And you were just describing it with the Dalai Lama. It's profound. And that is what actually each of us has the capacity to give to another. And when you're able to give that beautiful gift to another with no expectation of anything other than wanting them to be happy, that's when everything starts changing. Wow. So practically speaking, you know, people listening to this are saying, this sounds amazing. You know, they're, they're there with you, imagining their mothers, they're feeling the warmth. How do you, how do you actually practically do this? How do you practically bring it into your life every day and pay it forward every day? Well, I think there are a couple ways to do that. I talk about the alphabet of the heart in my book. Yeah. I came up with 10 letters of the alphabet, and those 10 letters were C through L. Compassion for self and others, recognizing the dignity of every person, practicing equanimity, this sense of evenness of temperament in the face of changing situations, practicing forgiveness, because so often we carry anger and hostility towards another, and it doesn't hurt those people, it only hurts us. You have an amazing line in the book that holding hostility towards somebody who has been hostile towards you is like drinking poison and hoping it kills them. And I think that's uh, exactly right. And uh, and then, of course, gratitude. And we know gr having gratitude for what you have and your blessings is very, very important to mental health. And uh, next is uh, humility, recognizing that you are no more important than anyone else in the world. You know, I always say you can tell a good doctor when he walks down the halls and he recognizes the person who changes the bed sheets, who changes the bedpans, who sweeps the floors. Every person in that environment is critical to my success and the patient's success in terms of an outcome. And having gratitude and appreciating that they are no more, no less important than me also creates a perception uh, versus the arrogance of elitism. And then, of course, having personal values and integrity, uh, rules or boundaries that you live by, that uh, you have defined that make you the best person you can be. And then justice in the context of fairness and our responsibility to those who are vulnerable. And all of this in a field, if you will, of acting kindly towards others where you do actions, not because you have any expectation other than seeing another person happy. And uh, when you do that and you live that, that then is essentially the definition of love, which is the last letter. And um, that has now become my own practice. And so what I do in the morning 
is I will sit. And we were talking about unconditional love. I will sit in the morning and think of the awe of simply being and also the feeling of being unconditionally loved and the warmth that you feel through that. And then I go through each of the letters with intention. And then that sets my intention for the day. Amazing. And let's just review the alphabet so that everybody can sink it in. So C, compassion. D, dignity. E, equanimity. F, forgiveness. H, humility. I, intention or integrity. J, justice. Justice or fairness. Yeah, fairness. K, kindness. kindness. And L, love. Yes. Beautiful. So every morning you go through those one at a time and feel them and sink in with them. And it's a, it's a wonderful way um, to center yourself throughout the day. So it may be funny to some people hearing a neurosurgeon talking about love and compassion. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the main points that you make in your book is that you've moved from the head to the heart and that the heart has more innervations to the head than the head has to the heart. Can you talk a little bit about this? Sure. As you know, um, there is representation of our nervous system uh, through all of our organs. And we know that this is not, uh, these connections are not a one-way street or road, if you will, but in fact, two-way. And there's signals that these organs, especially the heart, and we now know the stomach and the gastrointestinal tract signals us and our brain responds. And in fact, you have probably heard of the broken heart syndrome. And this is uh, was described in, uh, in Japan. But, you know, people who have gone through incredible emotional trials or tribulations, especially in this case related to a loved one, sometimes their heart will just stop and they'll have no disease whatsoever. So this back and forth signaling is critical to our mental and physical health. And in fact, there's some literature that says that it is more important in terms of mental physical health to practice compassion than being at your ideal body weight or exercise. Wow. Wow. And so we know that with certain types of meditative practices, with practices focused on compassion, it has a huge physiologic effect. Steve Cole and Barbara Fredrickson, uh, you may know, published this data on uh, a loving kindness type of meditation, whereby when you practice uh, these types of practices that connect with compassion, the expression of uh, inflammatory proteins actually decreases. And very quickly after you practice a type of uh, meditation like this, we also know, of course, stress hormones like cortisol or interleukin-6 actually decrease in the face of these types of practices. And so overall, we see that this supports this concept that our best place to be, our best state, is when we care and when we love and when we connect and when we're compassionate. You know, we're a social species. And if you look at how we evolved as a society and the creation of religion, essentially every religion has at its core compassion. 
So we now have multiple justifications for engaging in <laughs> compassion, both Absolutely. the, you know, the way that it improves our own physiology, allowing us to relax, improving our nervous system, the fact that it may be better for you than diet and exercise. So if anybody Absolutely. ever felt like, you know, this, this lovey-dovey stuff is for hippies, this, you know, lovey-dovey stuff is for women, this lovey-dovey stuff is for somebody else. It's actually for all of us. It makes, it's what makes all of us physiologically and socially stronger. No, you're absolutely correct. And it's interesting because I think the fact that, you know, I have been successful as a, uh, a neurosurgeon and at Stanford and have also been a successful entrepreneur gives some degree of credibility that these concepts are, in fact, real. And I have no problem being vulnerable or showing my own emotion. And it's interesting because some people think that, especially men, think that if you show that you hurt, that you're vulnerable, it's a sign of weakness. And it's interesting because, in fact, it's quite the opposite, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So I want to get back to your personal life story for another minute because it is so extraordinary in the lessons that it teaches. So you were in the magic shop and Ruth was giving you these lessons. You went from poverty to ultimately becoming a doctor. And then we wake up one morning in the book where you have $75 million in your bank account. You know, the things that you have always wanted. Can you tell us about that and what happens from there? Sure. So as a 12-year-old, even though I heard what Ruth told me and I went on to be very successful in a variety of domains... And I was never, if you will, wholly selfish, but my trajectory really was about me. And what happened is that I ended up being incredibly successful as an entrepreneur. I had a penthouse on the top of a building in San Francisco, a private elevator. I had Porsches, Ferraris. I was flying in private jets. Uh, I was had been divorced for a period of time. I was dating beautiful women. And... What's extraordinary about that is here, suddenly, everything that I thought translated into happiness, success, I would come home and feel empty and miserable. And I had everything, yet I had nothing. And I had never been, frankly, so unhappy in my entire life, having everything. And this is the problem with people. They look at others. They see the types of things that others have that I've been describing, and they have this false notion that, wow, if I just had that, that's going to make everything better and special, and it's all going to be great, and I'll be great, and I'll be happy. And um, what finally, if you will, allowed me to take the monkey off my back, which I realized after the fact was this monkey that was uh, still the 12-year-old boy who had to prove that he was worthy was actually when I lost everything. And over a six-week period after the dot-com crash, I ended up essentially uh, bankrupt and uh, several million dollars in debt and had to sell everything. And it put me into this period of deep, deep reflection. And in fact, it took me back to relive all the lessons I had learned and look at the trajectory of my life. And what I realized was that while I had never been bad, as I mentioned, I was more focused on myself. And 
at that point, having lost everything, being bankrupt, I decided that really what makes one happy is being of service and giving to others. And at that point, I had had stock that I had acquired as CEO of a medical device company that had yet to go public. And I'd made some uh, commitments to charity. And although I didn't have to live up to them, I decided that I would give all that stock away to charity. And uh, even in the face of being three or four million dollars in debt, and I signed it away. Wow. The company went public for one point three billion, <laughs> and I ended up becoming this incredible philanthropist. Uh, I set up health clinics all over the world. I set up a program for AIDS, HIV, and uh, children. I uh, set up blood banks. I endowed chairs at multiple universities. In fact, uh, at Tulane, my own university, I endowed the chair for the dean. I set up a scholarship, a multi-million dollar scholarship, actually in the name of this woman who allowed me to be in a summer enrichment program. And it allowed me to set up the center at Stanford that examines the neuroscience of compassion and altruism, uh, which I believe is now known throughout the world for the research we do and the work that we do. And it also allowed me to develop a relationship with the Dalai Lama, who's actually the founding benefactor of that center, and also for me to have really these extraordinarily and wonderful, profound relationships with different spiritual and religious leaders who've also given me uh, the incredible gift of seeing the world also in a different way. And so here I had everything and had nothing then I had nothing and then had everything, which is an interesting <laughs> paradox. <laughs> Millions of dollars in debt, yet the ability to endow all of this, you know, giving to others. Yes. And I hope uh, that I have still, uh, if you will, lived up to the statement that actually Ruth said to me so long ago which was to give the gift she gave to me to others. And so that's now your life's mission, taking the work that you learned as a 12-year-old in the back of a magic shop and disseminating it widely through science, through now literature into the magic shop and through all these vehicles and means. And it's a great joy and a great blessing to be able to do that. And in some ways takes us full circle how each of us has the capacity, even sometimes with simply a smile, to positively affect the life of another every day. How simply taking the time with somebody to help them through what could be a critical thing in their life, which takes very little time from your life, can be so profound. I think that's a lesson that we're learning over and over and over again from you. So I want to take a moment here and unpack how someone can begin to do this. What would you say that would help somebody unlock that? What's the step? What's the perception? What's the shift? I think the first thing is to learn how to relax and to breathe and be kind to yourself. And oftentimes when you think others have hurt you or have acted against you, they are suffering themselves. And I think that's critically important. And, you know, from my own experience as that 12-year-old, when I um, finished with Ruth, if you will, um, I 
went back to the exact same circumstance that existed before I started with Ruth. Nothing in my life changed. What changed, though, was how I reacted to events. I didn't carry anger. I didn't carry hostility. I recognized that my parents' actions, they did not have the tools to effectively deal with their own pain, which is so true of others. And what happened is when I released my own anger and hostility and how I perceived the world, the world changed how it reacted to me. Wow. So simply by shifting your own perspective, the world around you changes. And that perspective is your power. And everybody has within themselves the ability to shift their perspective, to look at the person who's being angry and saying, hey, I don't need to react with anger. I can react with compassion. To look at your own tendency to seize up and say, it's okay. I can just relax and let this in right now. To look at your own, you know, desire to hide from the world and say, no, it's okay. I can call someone and make connection. It's probably going to be okay. And even if it's not, I can deal with it. Exactly. All of us have stimuluses or stimuli, if you will, that impact us. And many of us are reactive, immediately reactive. And the thing, though, is that oftentimes how we react is not helpful for either ourselves or for the other. And so between stimulus and response is a pause. And as he says, within that pause is your freedom because it's within that pause where you have a choice. <sighs> Amazing. So thank you for sharing with us the value of the pause, the value of the heart, the possibility of the freedom that we can all have from our situation, whether we think it's dire or normal, the opportunity to reach out and connect to another, to make the world better and stronger through love and compassion. Thank you for your work and your time today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for letting us inside your head and your heart. And it's a joy to be with you. To find out more about Jim's inspiring work, you can go to intothemagicshop.com. There you'll also find four recordings as Jim guides you through the four magic tricks that Ruth taught him. How to calm the body, still the mind, open the heart, and accomplish your dreams. I also highly recommend just picking up the book. You can find it on Amazon.com or your favorite bookseller, and it's called Into the Magic Shop. If you're curious about more of Jim's research into the heart and the brain, you can find it at the Stanford C-Care, the center that he set up, the Center for Compassion and Altruism. If you want to see the full video with our full conversation, you can find that at arielgarten.com, A-R-I-E-L-G-A-R-T-E-N. That's me. And if you're looking for a muse, you can pick one up at choosemuse.com and use the discount code UNTANGLE15. I wish you all an amazing holiday season and may you bring into your life a little magic. Till next week, when Patricia will be back with more Untangle. <laughs>